It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Sunday, July 5th, 2020. On this day in 1934, police opened fire on the longshoremen striking at the Embarcadero in San Francisco, California. The men were protesting for better wages and working conditions, but the violent assault left over a hundred wounded and two dead, and the day became known as Bloody Thursday. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Today we're covering Bloody Thursday, That morning, the International Longshoremen's Association strike escalated when the police took violent action against the protesters at Rincon Hill. Let's go back to San Francisco on July 5, 1934, Bloody Thursday. Each day, men would arrive at the Embarcadero, San Francisco's port, around 8 a.m. to compete for a day's work. They'd gather, begging to be chosen by the dock's hiring boss, just so that they could feed their families that night. They'd return the next morning with the same uncertainty. But it had been more than two months since 12,000 longshoremen stationed along 2,000 miles of the western coastline had walked out on their duties, refusing to partake in this barbaric system any longer. Now there was no one to dock the ships, unload the incoming cargo, or pack the ships for export. This put commerce at a standstill, and things only got worse when the sailors, firemen, Cooks, stewards, and other marine workers joined the longshoremen behind the picket line. The press had called these strikers vultures and claimed they were feeding on the unfortunate situation and the impoverished people of their city. The Central Labor Council referred to them as communists, but the longshoremen didn't care. They refused to go back to work until their demands were met. They wanted to raise the rate from 85 cents to $1 an hour for a guaranteed six-hour day, five times a week. Today, that would be a raise from about $15 to $19 an hour. Their work required hard manual labor to keep the ships running smoothly and on time. A tiny raise and guaranteed employment seemed like a small and necessary ask. That July 5th, a dense fog covered San Francisco's Rincon Hill neighborhood. It was a working-class, almost slum-like part of town, home to many longshoremen and their families. And it was within walking distance of the San Francisco port, where the men fought for work each day. But today, they were fighting for their rights. 
Thousands of picketers lined the streets, joined by sympathizers. Many of them held signs with slogans like, We want full recognition and Don't Scab. Other pedestrians watched from their rooftops and windows, feeling the anxiety and tension in the air. Everyone was certain something was brewing. By 8 a.m., thousands of heavily armed policemen escorted a series of trucks towards the Embarcadero. Inside those trucks were strike breakers, traders willing to work for the day so that the city could reopen the port. The strikers charged through the police lines, trying to shake and rattle the trucks threatening their cause. Among those strikers was 33-year-old Australian immigrant Harry Bridges, a union longshoreman. Bridges wasn't looking for violence, just for someone to hear him out. Unfortunately, today would not be that day. The police responded by issuing tear gas into the crowd, which caused riots to break out. Police began assaulting the crowd with clubs and trampling those in their way. The unarmed strikers tried to fight back by throwing bricks, rocks, anything they could find in the streets. That's when police started firing their weapons. Chaos erupted. The smell of blood and gunpowder filled the streets. Protesters like Harry Bridges could hardly see through the madness. More police cars arrived to support the armed side of the mutiny, but other strikers came out of nowhere carrying iron and stone. Eventually, there were so many protesters, they outnumbered the police. The fighting lasted hours. It even spread down to Market Street, three miles from where it first began. By the afternoon, numbers didn't matter. The superior power of the police's artillery had driven the strikers off entirely. All that remained were broken windows, shattered glass, shotgun casings, and pools of blood on the pavement. Over a hundred people were injured, and two were shot dead. A longshoreman and war veteran named Howard Sperry, and a culinary worker named Nick Bourdois. That afternoon, the governor of California, Frank Merriam, declared a state of emergency. Soon, the National Guard would arrive at the waterfront. Newspapers declared that the strike was over, but that was far from true. Harry Bridges emerged from the battle as their leader, ready to fight another day. They had lost the battle, but the war had just begun. Coming up, we'll explore the days following Bloody Thursday and the results of the strike. And now, back to the story. On July 5, 1934, longshoremen and other maritime employees gathered at San Francisco's Embarcadero to continue to strike for better wages and working conditions. The gathering turned violent when police attacked the crowd with tear gas, clubs, and live ammunition. Hundreds were injured and two were killed. In the days following Bloody Thursday, Flowers and letters adorned the streets of the massacre, paying respect to the two men killed, Nick Bourdois and Howard Sperry. Civilians begged the city to have a funeral for the men, and officials complied, 
if they promised to be civil. The service was held on July 9, 1934, followed by an emotional procession. Novelist and attendee Charles Norris described the event as a spectacular and stirring sight, as thousands of men and women, to the solemn cadences of Beethoven's dirge, silently followed the dead, and the attendant trucks piled high with wreaths and floral tributes. At the same time, the governor had ordered 1,700 National Guardsmen to line the Embarcadero with a barbed wire fence and machine gun nests. If a picketer tried to approach, the Guardsmen were given permission to shoot to kill. At sea, more than 250 ships along the West Coast remained anchored. The companies trying to transport those goods were losing roughly $1 million a day, or about $19 million in today's dollars, which was even more reason for the day laborers to get their fair share. The truck drivers' union, known as the Teamsters, had stood by the International Longshoremen's Association's side. On July 11th, the two unions met and decided they must continue to strike. Their movement was now headed by one passionate laborer, longshoreman Harry Bridges. By the end of the week, they had 115 other unions on their side. Many of them expanded far outside of the maritime industry. They all agreed to walk out of their jobs on Monday, July 16, 1934, at 8 a.m., this would show their employers and the city that this kind of civilian abuse would not be tolerated. 130,000 people walked out of their jobs that day. Small businesses all over the city closed down in support for the maritime laborers and truck drivers. News of this camaraderie had even spread to cities like Portland and Seattle, and their citizens too began striking over the next few days. Meanwhile, the press made the protesters out as the villains. They blamed them for inciting violence and even suggested the protesters were communists. But the unwarranted name-calling only made matters worse. On July 18th, police and protesters came head-to-head -head once again, this time in Smith Cove, Washington, which led to the arrest of hundreds throughout the next couple of days. Those outside the Longshoremen's Union were spooked. Unions like the Teamsters began to break ranks and return to work. Others followed their lead. Things looked bleak for the maritime laborers and their dreams of fair pay. The Longshoremen turned to Bridges for guidance. He suggested that perhaps it was time to give up the fight and return to work together. He was quoted saying, I think the longshoremen are ready to break tomorrow. They've had enough of it. The ship owners have got us backed up. We're trying to back up step by step instead of turning around and running. On July 27th, the men returned to the docks and unloaded their first ship in nearly three months. Many felt that the deaths of Nick Bourdois and Howard Sperry had been in vain, that their fight had amounted to nothing. 
Meanwhile, the strike committee insisted that the longshoremen submit their issues to federal arbitrators. The laborers didn't have much faith that their demands would be met by the federal government. Still, the National Labor Board held its hearings. By October, all of the arguments had been heard, and the board came to their final conclusions. The board ruled that the fixed wage be 95 cents an hour, or about $18 today, and $1.40 for overtime, equal to $27 now. The laborers also got their requested six-hour workday and 30-hour-a-week guarantee. Saturdays, Sundays, and legal holidays were marked for overtime pay. The board also ruled that the hiring be done without favoritism or discrimination because of union or non-union membership. It was an incredible victory for the longshoremen, who got almost everything they were fighting for, and it also showed just how powerful unionization could be. Harry Bridges went on to form a new chapter of the International Longshoremen's Association titled the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union. He fought tirelessly for the next 40 years, trying to win better rights for his colleagues and even faced prosecution and deportation for his labor organizing. Luckily, this never resulted in any serious consequences. Now, every year on July 5th, Port cities continue to honor Nick Burdois and Howard Sperry, who lost their lives fighting for their rights on that bloody Thursday in 1934. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our series, Secret Societies, and the episode on the Molly Maguires for more information about the plight of labor unions. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Lori Gottlieb with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 